In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we come together to again explore the meaning of Holy Scripture. And we ask your blessing on our efforts this evening for this morning. Um, so that we can understand not only what the Scripture says, but what does it mean? What is the background? What is the purpose? And what should we take away from this uh, class this morning? So help us then to open our minds and our hearts, but more especially our spiritual ears, so that we hear what you want us to hear through Holy Scripture. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Well, you'll all be forgiven for being a little late, you know. I just have to grin and bear it for, because it's the beginning of Lent. Uh, and you've probably heard this many times, but Lent is a time um, to really examine our minds and our hearts as to where we are with our relationship with Christ. So make it a positive thing. As we've said last week, and I think the week before, it should be a positive time uh, for spiritual uh, housekeeping, you might say. Uh, we often talk about doing spring cleaning. How about doing some spiritual uh, housekeeping? And find out just where are we with our relationship with Christ. Okay. But um, any questions before... Uh, we begin on chapters 5 and 6. Any other questions that you might want to ask? Curiosities? I noticed that uh, in your service, if you went to Mass here, you got not only sackcloth, but uh, I mean, not the ashes, but also a piece of, of sackcloth. All right? And of course, that is a reminder of how penances were put out in the early church. All right? Uh, people were told to wear sackcloth and ashes, but that didn't <clears throat> last very long because of the change from the Old Testament, where it comes from, uh, into the New Testament. <clears throat> that God, through Jesus Christ, paid the price for our sins. And therefore, some of the... Uh, Procedures, some of the traditions of the Old Testament were no longer valid or acceptable, uh, and that we rose to a higher level. The Old Testament, in many ways, is an earthbound type of uh, procedure and, and commitment. Um, the whole idea of the first commitment, which was made between God the Father and Abraham way back in uh, about the 20th century B.C., okay, 2,000 years before Christ. Uh, it was earthbound, all right? Meaning that it was strictly in reference to the people of the time, and it wasn't really um, intended to be a spiritual thing, because the people hadn't been instructed or hadn't been uh, developed in their thinking about God. The story of Abraham is really, back in the book of Genesis, is really the beginning of 
man's relationship with God himself. Not Jesus, but the Father. It was the Father revealing himself to Abraham and developing the initial uh, relationship between God and mankind. The stories before that, Adam and Eve and the Cain and Abel and the Tower of Babel and Noah and the Ark, those all come from legends and myths. Not to, to imply that they aren't beautiful stories and they don't have a great meaning. But the whole idea is uh, when the Israelites were in Egypt for roughly 400 years and when they were later in Babylon for 50 years, they picked up a lot of beliefs of those local people, which made a lot of sense. And it wasn't until the 5th century B.C., uh, that the books of the Bible, well, now let's put it this way. It started around the 10th century B.C. when the books of the Bible began to be written down. All right? But between the 10th century and the 5th century, uh, they were revised many times to fit the needs and the understanding of the Jewish people's faith and history. Scripture uh, particularly the Old Testament, did not start out as scripture or sacred writings. It started out as history and instruction. And some of it still is. Um, the New Testament is entirely different. But the Old Testament really started out as history around the 10th century. It wasn't until after the uh, Babylonian exile ended in the year 539 B.C. and some of the people uh, returned to Israel. Remember, they were there for 50 years. Obviously, they had children in Babylon who never knew anything about Israel and many of them stayed in Babylon. Okay. They weren't uh, slaves as we traditionally think of slaves. They were more indentured servants, which was very customary at the time for taking conquered people in back into uh, the homeland of the conqueror. All right. So, when Cyrus the Great permitted the Jewish people to leave Babylon and return to Israel, not everybody came back. Uh, it is traditionally talked about as the small remnant. That is the word used to describe the people who returned to Israel from Babylon uh, towards the end of the 6th century B.C. All right. And it wasn't then until almost a 100 years later that the books of the Old Testament, the early books of the Old Testament, were revised again to incorporate many of the understandings that developed in that 500 year period but it had no beginning it started out with the book of Exodus with Moses being the central character and then if you go through Exodus and uh, Numbers and Leviticus and later Deuteronomy uh, it's still the story of the Jewish people had no beginning 
So it wasn't until around the beginning of the 5th century BC that they started to bring together a lot of the thinking uh, and the experiences, the traditions, the myths, uh, you know, all of that kind of thing, and develop the book of Exodus. <coughs> but God was truly with them when they did so, because we can understand and we get a greater understanding and knowledge of God the Father out of the book of Exodus, I mean Genesis, I'm sorry, I get my books mixed up, out of the book of Genesis, the first book that we call now, um, then in all of the rest of the Old Testament, the first five chapters tells us about God's creation, God's relationship uh, with uh, sinful mankind and how he was going to deal with it. We get a little bit of the understanding of um, the uh, plan of God, the plan of salvation, because in the story of the serpent uh, tempting Adam and Eve and so forth, and then God confronting the serpent. Anybody know why it was a serpent? little story there, a sideline. Because when they were in Egypt, serpents were worshipped. Um, and the Israelites, they weren't called Jews at the time, the Israelites uh, were horrified by mankind worshipping a serpent. So in the story of creation, that wasn't written until around the 5th century, long after uh, the people got out of Egypt, did they use a serpent sort of to uh, symbolize evil. Okay. Uh, and it was sort of getting back at, at the you know, Egyptian people who forced the Jews to worship their gods. Okay. And, of course, the story goes that Cleopatra, yeah, Cleopatra died uh, by allowing the poisonous snake uh, to bite her, okay? Uh, again, because she came from a culture that worshipped snakes. Uh, so that's why the snake is you. But I'm getting off the track. The whole idea is that the first covenant, see, that's what influence you gals up here. The first covenant was strictly land-based, alright? It represented God's commitment to the Jewish people for land, alright? Up until the time of Abraham, most of these people were nomadic people, nomads, alright? They moved from place to place in order to pasture their flocks. That was their livelihood, that was the uh, form of living, and so forth and so on. And that's why they had to move, because if you left uh, a herd of sheep or goats into any one place too long, they would eat themselves literally out of house and home. All right? And they would eventually die off, because there was no food for them. 
So that's why they constantly moved around. All right. So it was land that was very important because God wanted them to start settling down into various locations. And that is the um, ultimate goal of the promised land. All right. Adam, I mean, uh, Abraham was promised land. It wasn't until he reached the promised land that he truly understood that. He was also promised descendants. Remember, Abraham and his wife Sarah were quite elderly and had no children uh, up till the point. And then God finally gave Abraham Isaac. Of course, the little story on the side is that he got a little restless until that time came, took matters into his own hands and had a child uh, through uh, his wife's, uh, Sarah's uh, servant, Hagar. Okay. Uh, then the last one was protection. Now, it's worded as protection in the Bible because if God had said eternal life, they wouldn't have understood what that meant. You have to build up into it and have a lot of background before you understand really what eternal life is all about. So, the first covenant that God made with mankind, Abraham, was land, descendants, and protection. Alright? Sort of all land-based type of things. Uh, or earth-based, you might say. Okay? It wasn't until Christ himself came and paid the price for the sins of all mankind before, during, and after his time uh, that the idea and understanding of mankind's returning to the Father in heaven at some point in time, first after death and then after the end of the earth, did they really understand the whole idea of eternal life. Now, in between, you see there was a transition from the idea of the promised land being Israel and what happened after the people lost, the Jewish people lost control of Israel. Right? And they did that at Babylon. They lost control of Israel. First, it was conquered by Babylon and then Babylon was conquered by the Medes and then the Persians and then the Greeks, and then later the Romans. So, during that 500 year period, the Jewish people began to ask themselves, well, if we're never going to be totally sovereign, or totally in control of our land, what does this term promised land really mean? It doesn't have any meaning, and that is when they began to realize that heaven was going to be the eternal promised land. Okay. Now, back from the time of Moses, they understood that there was a heaven. It was always up there somewhere because Moses conversed with God when God called Moses up to the top of the mountain. And he went up and down so many times, I always say he needed an escalator or an elevator. You know, poor guy was pretty old by that time. 
But that's where mankind got the idea of the gods were always up there. Because God would come down and there would be fire and smoke and, uh, you know, fiery clouds and trumpets and all of that jazz. Okay. But it wasn't until sometime in between the Babylonian exile and the time of Christ, somewhere around the 3rd or 4th century, where they began to realize that God was really calling them back to himself. Okay? Which means heaven. And that was then the ideal or the promised land. But then they began to think, well, who's going to lead us to this new promised land? Like Moses led them eventually out of Egypt back to the promised land. Okay? Way back in the 15th century. Alright? So who's going to lead us? Well, they began to think about somebody like David. David is the one who brought the people together under one king. Remember, you had the 12 tribes of Israel. When they settled in the promised land, they settled as 12 separate tribes because that's what God wanted. He constantly had this idea that people settled in a land and that became something that they could identify with. All right? Well, now, who's going to lead us into this new promised land if it's up there? So they thought about somebody like David. You know, David was the one who united, who united these people from being 12 tribes down into being a united nation. Not United Nations like in New York, but a united nation of their own. And that is when they began to think about uh, a Messiah. They didn't call it the Messiah as we do today and think of it at that way. It was, and the translation is more, the anointed one of God. That is, if you translate the anointed one of God through the Hebrew and the Aramaic through the Latin and the English, it comes out Christ. Okay? Oh, I forgot the Greek in there too. Uh, uh, but you've got to go through all of those different languages to get to where we are when we say Christ, we mean the anointed one of God, the Messiah. Now, I've gone through a, a long spiel, you might say. By the word spiel, uh, anybody knows what the word spiel means? It's German, okay? It's German for the word news or story, all right? News or story. And that is where we get the word gospel from. Gut Spiel. G-U-T-T with the, um, we got the name of the mark over it. And then Spiel, all right? In German, Gut Spiel. It means gospel or good news. So, I'm telling you a lot of little history and anecdotes, but in some ways they help you to understand. And that's what Mr. and Mrs. Edwards and I were talking about when uh, we uh, they first came in. Okay. Uh, and it's important and helpful because when you start taking these little stories about the background and bringing them together, it 
puts things in the proper perspective. And then you began to see how the Bible all fits together. And you all know what a Rubik's Cube is, do you not? You know, all the little cubes, but they're all fastened together. And the objective is to try to get all the same colors on the same side. I've never been able to do that yet. Nevertheless, that's how the Bible all fits together. It's all related in some way. And if you all get the, the colors in the right place, you then see God's plan of salvation. Okay, now, what does all of that mean in relation to chapters 5 and 6 out of Prophet Daniel? Yes, Laura? Uh-huh. In chapter 5? Chapter 5? 4. Is the last verse before going to chapter 5? Before the writing of the world. Oh, yes. All right. Uh huh. Therefore, I have for him to say that now praise of the cross and glorify the king of heaven, because all his works are just so if you glorify the Lord, Yes, 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 yes. Cora's comment here is uh, verse 34, chapter 4, verse 34, uh, is another one of those incidents uh, which you'll see more of at the end of chapter 5 and 6 where the king finally comes to his senses and uh, glorifies the God of the Israelites. Uh-uh. You know that none of that happened. This is wishful thinking. Yes. Okay. And it's meant to give the people who are reading this in the second century hope. The stories that are, the six stories here the first uh, six chapters of this book, are all about hope and trust in the fidelity uh, and obedience to God the Father. All right? Hang in there, guys, because it'll get better. And it did. Unfortunately, uh, they had to go to war. You took, uh, you take uh, Judas Maccabeus and his sons, uh, if you read the stories from First and uh, Second Maccabees, you'll see that uh, the Seleucid kings, particularly Antiochus IV and his successor, were finally routed uh, out of Israel, but not after a very difficult struggle. Okay, but that's what that means in uh, verse 34 of chapter four. Yes, it says therefore I Nebuchadnezzar. Now praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven, because all his works are right and all his ways just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Of course, this is after the story of his uh, recovery, you might say, from the seven years uh, by which he was, um, well, to put it politely, can't put it politely. <laughs> uh, 
Well, he was sort of uh, incapacitated, let's put it that way. Okay. Uh, now, that didn't happen either, you see. Uh, and that is one of the ways that we look at Scripture. It should be um, confirmed by other portions of the Scripture. For example, why do we have four Gospels? They all tell virtually the same story. All right? Well, think about it. If down through history there was only one gospel, whether it be Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, doesn't make any difference. If there was only one gospel, how many non-believers would claim that that was written like somebody like L. Ron Hubbard or some of these people that write science fiction? You could almost say that. And there would be no way to dispute it. But when you have four people from very different backgrounds telling essentially the same story, and they weren't all written at the same time, they were written over a period of 50 years towards the end of the first century, you then have a way of comparing them and saying that four different people from very different backgrounds couldn't be wrong, all wrong. Okay. So that's the same way uh, with other parts of Scripture. You should be able to confirm one part with another part. Or you should be able to say, if one part is correct and another part is correct, then certain other things related should be correct or proper or whatever. There's ways of doing that, but it's only after you've really understood most of the Bible and how it fits together can you really see that. And therefore, by people who, during Lent, saying, I'm going to read the Bible from page, first page all the way through to the end. Well, I guarantee you that very few people will ever get there. Okay? Because by the time you get up to the book of Numbers, you'll be so confused and so bored that you'll say, no more. Alright? Because that's not the way to study Scripture. Alright? That is not the way to study Scripture. When people ask me how to uh, start out reading the Bible if they have never done so before, uh, even though they've heard the stories many times in church and so forth. I always say start with something like the Gospel of Matthew. Alright? And isn't that the one we studied last time? Alright. Because Matthew is structured so very well for study purposes. Um, and by the way, Matthew himself probably didn't write that. It was written from somebody far more educated uh, who was instructed in the structure of literature, etc. But nevertheless, it probably came from Matthew's teaching. <coughs> uh, but Matthew references many passages from the Old Testament, or many events uh, as described in the Old Testament. So if you read Matthew, and then when he describes some event or person from the Old Testament, and you go back and you read a little of that, 
you see how that fits into what Matthew is doing. Okay? And once you've done that over and over, you begin to see how the Old Testament fits in to the New. And it does. In a very nice way. God was very smart in developing the scriptures as we have them today. Okay. Because, you know, they were all written by uh, different people. You had 76 books in the Catholic version of the Bible. And uh, you might say, with the exception of St. Paul and St. John and a few others, uh, that at least there were 50 different people involved in the writings. Okay. But they all dovetail into the New Testament, and the New Testament actually projects the life of Christ and why he came to earth in the first place. And that why, the answer to that is eternal life. It is all meant to help mankind eventually return to the Father and enjoy eternal life with God. Alright, let's go on here. Chapter 5 <laughs> 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 says <clears throat> King Belshazzar <clears throat> now Belshazzar as described in here was Nebuchadnezzar's son. Technically that is not correct. But you see the author of these stories was not interested in presenting true history. So, let's forget about that part of it, okay? <clears throat> King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for thousands of his lords, with whom he drank. Under the influence of the wine, mm, they had DUIs in those days, <laughs> he ordered the gold <clears throat> and silver vessels, which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, <clears throat> had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, to be brought in so that the king, his lords, his wives, his entertainers might drink from them. And when the gold and silver vessels taken from the house of God in Jerusalem had been brought in, and while the king, his lords, his wives, and his entertainers were drinking wine from them, they praised their gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron, wood and stone. Do you recognize the order in which those are placed there. Gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Where did you hear those before? Hmm? In the first chapter. Yes. Uh-huh. Exactly. All right. Let's stop there for a moment because if you go back into the book of Maccabees, first book of Maccabees. Oh, all right, yeah, there, there is, there, but there was another story um, uh, along those lines, too. I, I guess you're right. It says, yet I was kindly and beloved in my rule. Yeah, sure. Uh, but now I recall the evils I did in Jerusalem when I carried away all the vessels of gold and silver that were in it and for no cause gave orders that the inhabitants of Judah be destroyed. I know that this is why the evils have overtaken me, and now I am dying in bitter grief, 
in a foreign land. Now, of course, this is Antiochus IV at his deathbed. But you see, eventually these things actually happened, but not in the way depicted in the book of the prophet Daniel. So, um, there is another story, you might say, in the gospel of, uh, of Mark. You can go to Mark chapter 6. <laughs> and you've all heard this many times because it's said uh, at least once every three years. Uh, chapter 6, beginning with verse 31. Actually, if you go to verse 14, King Herod came to hear, um, to learn of Jesus, for his reputation had become widespread and people were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and that is why such miraculous powers are at work in him. Others were saying he is Elijah, still others he is a prophet, equal to any of the prophets. On hearing of Jesus, Herod exclaimed, John whose head I cut off, has been raised. Herod was one of those who ordered John arrested, chained, and imprisoned on account of Herodias, his wife. Herodias had her chance one day against John, and when Herod held a birthday dinner for his court uh, circle, military officers, and leading men of Galilee, Herodias' own daughter came in at one point and performed a dance which delighted Herod and his guests. The king told the girl, Ask for anything you want, and I will give it to you. He even went so far as to swear to her, I will grant you whatever you ask, even to half of my kingdom. See, that is in relationship to the other story about the writing on the wall. Okay? Because once Herod made that commitment in front of everybody, uh, then the girl, Salome, had uh, a carte blanche <laughs> excuse me, request for virtually anything. And that's, of course, why she went to her mother, and the mother said, hmm, the head of John the Baptist on a plate. All right. That's the same kind of thing as getting back into the book of John the Baptist. <clears throat> These stories are not unusual. The whole story about Daniel is sort of a takeoff on the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Joseph, one of the uh, sons of Jacob, one of the twelve tribes of Jacob, you might say, was sold into slavery uh, by his brothers uh, to uh, men in the caravan going to Egypt. And when he got there, he was sold into the uh, Pharaoh's um, household, you might say, again, as a servant. But he rose immediately to the top. Now, again, this is story. Okay, He arose immediately to... Uh, the top of the order, so to speak, and became a favorite of uh, the king and so forth and so on. That's what the whole book of Daniel is based on. 
that kind of story. <coughs> suddenly, back into Daniel now, suddenly, opposite the lampstand, the fingers of a hand appeared, writing on the plaster of the wall in the king's palace. When the king saw the wrist and the hand that wrote, his face blanched, his thoughts terrified him, his hips uh, joints shook, it sounds like Elvis, <laughs> and his knees knocked. Uh, the king shouted for the enchanters, Chaldeans, uh, astrologers, etc. to be brought in. Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means, he said to the wise men of Babylon, shall be clothed in purple and wear a golden collar around his neck and be third in the government of the kingdom. Always wondered who was second. <laughs> but though all the king's wise men came in, none of them could either read the writing or tell the king what it meant. Then King Belshazzar was greatly uh, terrified. His face went ashen and his lords were thrown into confusion. When the queen heard of the discussion between the king and his lords, she entered the banquet hall and said, O king, live forever. Be not troubled in the mind, nor look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. During the lifetime of your father, he was seen to have brilliant knowledge and godlike wisdom. In fact, King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Do you notice the word Chaldeans is capitalized and the others are not? Anyone find out why? I'm not going to tell you either. <laughs> no, it is capitalized throughout the Bible. All right. <clears throat> because... <clears throat> It comes from the name of a people, a certain group of people who comprise the whole region of Mesopotamia. All right. Uh, it is referred to um, in a more respectful way, and that is why it is capitalized, because these people were very intelligent, and that's why they were often... Um, classified as astrologers. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, all right, yes. Oh, on Hazel, okay, all right. Because over on Kirby, you know, there's a Coptic Orthodox Church. Yeah. Now, that, it used to say Catholic, but it, Coptic Catholic Church, they've changed that now to Orthodox. Um, that is not uh, a Christian church, okay? Uh, they may claim to be, but like the Mormons and the Seventh-day Adventists and the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, it, it comes within sort of a cult. Okay. Um, uh, it might be. Yeah, it might be. Uh, 
Well, now that's, see, that's a different subject because within the Roman Catholic Church, there are several different rites. Okay, R-I-T-E-S. All right. And the Chaldeans is one of them. Uh, Chaldeans, Babel, uh, Byzantine, Armenian, and I, um, hmm? Maronite, that's right. Now there's a few more. Okay. All right, but let's not get off the subject. Okay. When the queen heard the discussion between the king and his lords, she entered the banquet hall and said, O king, live forever. Be not troubled in mind, nor look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom. <coughs> Forgive me. There is a man in your kingdom uh, in whom is the spirit of the holy God. During the lifetime of your father, he was seemed to have a brilliant knowledge and godlike wisdom. In fact, King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, uh, and astrologers. Because of the extraordinary mind possessed by this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, he knew and understand how to interpret dreams, explain, etc., etc. <clears throat> then David was brought in to the presence of the king. The king asked him, are you, you know, here we go again. Are you, and so forth and so on. I have heard that the spirit of God is in you, that you possess brilliant knowledge and extraordinary wisdom. Now the wise men and enchanters were brought in uh, to me and read this uh, writing on the wall. Uh, but they could not say what the words meant. But I have heard that you can interpret dreams and solve difficulties. If you are able uh, to read the writing and tell me what it means, you shall be clothed in purple, wear a golden collar about your neck, and be third in the government of the kingdom. Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts or give your presents to someone else, but the writing I will read for you. O king, and tell what it means. The Most High God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar a great kingdom and glorious majesty. Because he made him so great, the nations and the peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Whomever he wished, he killed or let live. Whomever he wished, he exalted or humbled. But when his heart became proud and his spirit hardened by insolence, he was put down from his royal throne and deprived of his glory. That is kind of in reference to the previous chapter. He was cast out from among men and was made insensate as a beast. He lived with wild asses and ate grass like an ox. His body was bathed with the dew of heaven until uh, he learned that the Most High God rules over the kingdom of men and appoints over it whom he will. You, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. And though you knew all this, you have rebelled against the Lord of heaven. You have, you had the vessels of his temple brought before you so that you and your notables your wives and your entertainers might drink wine from them 
and you praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, that neither see nor hear nor have intelligence. But the God in whom, in whose hand is your life, breath, and the whole course of your life, you did not glorify. By him were the wrists and the hand sent, and the writing set down. This is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Teco, and Peres. These words mean, Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Teco, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And Peres, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then, by order of Belshazzar, they clothed Daniel in purple with gold. You know, see, that just doesn't make sense in a way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, if you tell him his fortune, and uh, it is certainly not complimentary, uh, nor constructive in any way, uh, the most rational of persons would be upset and certainly not reward this guy with all these gifts you know so you can see the well the the illogic thinking here but that's what is intended it is to say that only based on the turnaround of the king in his thinking could God uh, really allow the good things to happen? But since we know that it won't, the opposite is going to happen. Right? Um, I have a very difficult time uh, when I read books that present this as historical. And Although there is a lot of very good information in this book, a lot more detailed than in this one, uh, the writer on this book does not point out that these are just stories intended to give the people of the second century B.C. hope that the reign of Antiochus IV would only be a short time. he writes this more or less as if it were history. And that bothers me because I think people get the wrong impression. And they don't read it the right way. We here in our modern society are being forced in many ways to accept things that we don't like. Uh, I remember last summer I was visiting some friends in Southern California and I was a guest in their home and they wanted to watch uh, American Idol. I can stop and think. Uh, and it happened to be the last uh, episode of one season. I never watched it so I don't know the details. Okay. And the two people that were uh, competing for the final prize or whatever we're all right. They were very young people, a young man and a young lady. And what they did, I thought, was reasonably good. 
But for two hours, you know, they had to fill in with a lot of other stuff. And it was so, pardon the expression, but so raunchy uh, that it really turned me off. And I was thinking, these two young people, 16 and 17 years old or whatever they were, you know, being exposed to that kind of stuff early in their career, they might think that that's all there is out there. But that to me wasn't the way it should be. And if it were, if I was watching that in my house, I would have turned it off right then and there. Um, but nevertheless. And that's not the only thing. Uh, the, the fads, yes, what? Well, okay. Yeah. Well, the thing is, <clears throat> there is no other book in history that references Daniel uh, for any reason at all. All right. Now, there is a person by the name of Daniel in one of uh, the early books of the Bible, but there is no connection. Okay. And you get, you know, there's several Johns throughout you know, the Bible, so um, some names are repeated quite often. But look at the politics uh, that are coming uh, out of Washington. Um, uh, I'm not going to get into all of that, but you can see where we are being pressed into accepting a lot of things that um, go against our faith and our beliefs. The only way that we have to combat that is through the vote. Or, uh, you know, not buy certain things, uh, not watch certain uh, programs, etc. And I think during Lent would be a good time to start examining um, our um, style of living. Any problems with Chapter 5? Any questions on Chapter 5? Uh, yes? Well, he, yeah, in, yes, I think, um, excuse me, I think you have a point there. Uh, the question is, if Daniel was in, put in charge of all of these magicians and astrologers, etc., that seemed to go against our belief system too, and particularly the beliefs of, of Jewish people at the time. Um, I can't answer that, you know, except, well, you know, he was, he was a captive or indentured servant, and maybe he didn't have any choice, you know, but, yeah, uh, the other thing is, again, this is a story, uh, realistically, it doesn't make sense, yeah, they gave him a job, yeah, they, you know, kept him around for a while. The other thing is, um, there is so much time difference uh, between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar uh, that Daniel would have been a very old person by that time. You see? Yeah. Um, yeah. Because uh, Nebuchadnezzar ruled for 
I don't remember quite quite a while. I don't remember just how many years, but quite a while. All right. And then there was somebody in between because Nibonidas was actually Nebuchadnezzar's Bel- uh, son. Okay. And Belshazzar was the grandson, we think. All right. Yes. No, and no one else does either. No, these are words made up. Yes. Yes. Uh, even, even this other book could not explain it. They say that uh, there is some idea that these are weights and measures, uh, of, you know, one of the early Mideastern countries. And, uh, they have a relationship to how much a person is really worth or how much certain things are worth. But that's only speculation. There's no way to prove it. Okay. So, no, we don't know what language that is. <coughs> Excuse me. Let's go on to chapter 6. Darius the Mede succeeded the kingdom at the age of 62. And now that part is true. Okay. Darius decided to appoint over his entire kingdom 120 satraps to safeguard his interests. And these were accountable to three supervisors, one of whom was Daniel. See, Daniel is now being given another job whether he likes it or not. Yes? What is that? I don't know. Sorry, I can't tell you. Yeah. I, I assume it's some kind of a supervisor, but I have no way of knowing. Yeah. Um, Daniel outshone all the supervisors and satraps because an, uh, an extraordinary spirit was in him, naturally. And the king thought of giving him authority over the entire kingdom. Again, a reference back to the story of Joseph. Therefore, the supervisors and satraps tried to find grounds for accusation against Daniel as regards the administration. But they could accuse him of no wrongdoing because he was trustworthy. No fault or uh, neglect or misconduct was to be found in him. Then these men said to themselves, we shall find no grounds for accusation against this Daniel unless by the way of the law of his God. So, these supervisors and satraps went uh, thronging to the king and said to him, King Darius, live forever. That's sort of a title, more than a, you know, a command or whatever. All the supervisors of the kingdom, the prefects, satraps, nobles, and governors, are agreed that the following prohibition ought to be put in force by royal decree. No one is to address any petition to God or man for 30 days except to you, O king. Otherwise, he shall be cast into a den of lions. Now, O king, issue the prohibition over your signature, immutable and irrevocable under Mede and Persian law. So King Darius signed the Prohibition and made it law. 
that bothers me a little bit because that's that's a sign of a, a very weak king, uh, and perhaps he was. Even after Daniel heard that this law had been signed, he continues to uh, kneel in prayer and give thanks to his God in the upper chamber three times a day. With the windows open toward Jerusalem, so these men rushed in and found Daniel praying and pleading before his God. Then they went to remind the king about this. See, this whole thing is a trap, of course. Okay? Um, now, I did notice uh, that there was such a law uh, for a short time in the uh, Mede and Persian um, period uh, of history. The king was deeply grieved at this news uh, that Daniel was still praying, and he made up his mind to save Daniel. He worked until sunset to rescue him. But these men insisted, Keep in mind, O king, they said, that under the Mede and Persian law, every royal prohibition or decree is irrevocable. So the king ordered Daniel to be brought in and cast into the lion's den. To Daniel he said, May your God whom you serve so constantly save you, to forestall any tampering. <clears throat> the king sealed his own ring and the rings of the lords, that's the stone that had been brought to block the opening of the den. And then the king returned to his palace for the night. He refused to eat and he dismissed the entertainers. Since sleep was impossible for him, the king rose very early the next morning and hastened to the lion's den. As he drew near, he cried out to Daniel sorrowfully, O oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has God whom you serve so constantly been able to save you from the lions? And Daniel said, <laughs> O oh, king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and closed the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me, for I have been found innocent before him. Neither to you have neither to you have I done any harm, O king. This gave the king great joy. All his order at his order, Daniel was removed from the den, unhurt because he was he trusted in his God. The king then ordered the men who had accused Daniel along with their children and their wives to be cast into the lion's den. Before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed them off all their bones. Poor kids, yes. <clears throat> when King Darius wrote to the nations and peoples of every language, whatever they dwell on, wherever they dwell on the earth, all peace to you. I decree that throughout my royal domain, the God of Daniel is to be reverenced and feared. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall be without end. He is a deliverer and savior, working signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. And he delivered Daniel from the power, the lion's power. So Daniel fared well during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And he lived happily ever after. Now, look at the 
inconsistency here. If the king had written a letter, as it says here, to the nations and the peoples of every language, you would think that there would be some trace of that somewhere in history that would show up somewhere else and therefore support this. But there isn't any. And it's not that I want to belabor and constantly point down um, that these are stories made to, first of all, entertain the people of the time and to give them hope and courage about fidelity and obedience to the God of Israel. All right? The God whom we call Father. All right? That's important to remember. Uh, they may sound uh, almost childish, and I hate to present it that way. But at the same time, I wouldn't be honest and fair with you if I presented them as true stories or as true history because that's not what it is. It cannot be confirmed. None of these can be confirmed in uh, other parts of the Bible. It is, of course, these names, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Cyrus and various, yes, these are all historical names. They are not used here in the proper order. Uh, But that is a little difference. The writer is not too concerned with that kind of accuracy. Okay. But if you go to other uh, historical, historical fiction of today, like I used, uh, and I've said this before, I use Gone with the Wind because it's something that we all know something about. Um, and even though the characters are fictional characters, the storyline and the place and the events all did actually happen in historical reality. So what you've got is a mixture of reality, history, and fiction all brought together in here. And you have to kind of see that in order to make sense. Again, the whole idea is fidelity to God and obedience and perseverance in the faith. That's important. Any questions? Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, as much as five times the Muslims yeah. do. Yeah. And the Jewish people do too. Yeah. And not only Jewish people, but uh, many, many, many Catholics do as well. Particularly those in cloistered monasteries. Uh, if you've ever been up to the Trappist Monastery uh, just north of Chico and Vina, uh, they come together six times a day for prayer. Uh, and that's not unusual in the monastic life. Yeah. So three times is somewhat ordinary. Yes, Rita? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. That's, that's right. I remember that we did too uh, in Catholic schools uh, many years ago. We had the Angelus ring, and we'd all get up 
and say the prayer. I don't even remember it now, but um, angel of the Lord declared to Mary, etc., etc., and would say the Hail Mary, yes. Uh-huh. Any other questions or comments? Yes, or Dale? Yes, or Gail's comment here is that uh, the comment here in the book about uh, the satraps and the astrologers, etc., and all the accusers of Daniel and their wives and children were put into the lion's den and so forth. Uh, again, remember, this is fiction, um, but those kinds of things did happen. We read that even in the stories in the New Testament, uh, the story about uh, the debtor who was forgiven all of his debts, but when he went out, uh, he found somebody that owed him money, and uh, he accused them and, and demanded immediate payment. And if he couldn't, he was going to put all of his uh, family, including wives and children, into prison until they paid. And I often wondered, well, if they were all in prison, how were they going to pay, you know? But I never did figure that one out. Yes. But debtors were treated as property. Okay. And it, in our day and age, that sounds extremely harsh and unfair, but uh, that's the way life was in those days. That's what I've just said. You know, it doesn't doesn't make sense. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. Now, next week, what we want to do is review all of these six chapters and kind of bring them together uh, to present a story. Now, I don't want to be labored, but what I'd like you to do in the first <clears throat> meeting, I gave you uh, an outline uh, beginning with crisis and so forth. What I'd like you to do is to go through and see if you can figure in each of the six stories uh, how each of those um, captions are filled. All right. But I'll also do a spreadsheet that will hopefully bring them out. In addition to that, if you will, copy down passages that you find from the Old Testament that are similar or support some of the stories that we have read now in the book of Daniel. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the following week, we will start what is the second part of the book of Daniel. It is quite a bit different. Chapter 7 is the key chapter of this book. It begins the, what we call a cup, apocalyptic literature. It's quite a word. Apocalyptic literature. And if you think chapters one through six were difficult to understand, uh, wait till you get to chapter seven. Okay? But there is a lot of very beautiful, uh, poems or, or songs in chapter seven through 11. Chapter 12 and 13 were those two chapters that were written in Greek 
and not accepted by the Hebrew people. Uh, they are quite a bit different than all of the others. Uh, they supposedly are events happening in while uh, Daniel is very young. Uh, the last chapter, 13, is kind of strange in its own way. Uh, but we'll get there in time. Okay. Any questions? No questions. All right. Let us end then with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, though we are reading stories that seem to have no relationship to current day events, we know that in many ways we are being forced to accept things that go against your holy will and our beliefs. Help us then to sort these things out, particularly during this Lenten season, so that we might, if we can't do anything uh, to relieve the pressures or stem the tide of the evil, help us at least to see so that we can avoid as best we can uh, these dangers. So give us the grace and the strength to understand how it is and what it is you truly want of us as Christians, as Catholics. So give us the strength and the grace and we praise you in all things in Jesus' name.